Good morning. We're going to go into scripture reading today. Um, The passage for today is in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4. If you'd like to follow along with the physical Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 937. We will also be having AMA at the end of the service, so if you have any questions throughout the service, um, you can text them to a number that just popped up on the screen, um, and they will uh, get to as many as they can or group some themes and try to address those. Okay, Proverbs chapter four, starting in verse 18 and going through verse 27. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Don't let them out of your sight and keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot far from evil. The word of the Lord. Hey everyone. For 14 years now, the staff team that I've worked with have tried again and again vainly to anticipate where I will be absent-minded and put things in so that I won't forget them. I'm supposed to announce something right now and the slip of paper that was literally on my door so that I would have it now to tell you is not there. Or I just left it in my office. Um, I, think it, I think the preacher announcement is that we are doing an open house walkthrough at Monona Oaks Community Church tonight at, oh, there it is. Okay, great. <laughs> they do a great job, don't they? Um, uh, those are the two open houses that we're going to have. One of our, somebody on our pastoral team um, and some other folks who know stuff about the building's physical needs and stuff itself will be at both of those things. Um, and they'll be great. So, and then the town hall meeting is the fourth. And then our congregation will vote on whether or not we receive that building as a gift and use it for ministry will be on the 18th. All right? So, if you just absolutely know, you just 100% trust the elders on everything, then you're going to have an easy time. Just come and vote yes. But, because um, the elders voted to recommend that we accept the building. That's why I say it that way. Um, if you've got lots of questions, there's lots of places to get your answers. Okay? All right, let's dive in. Because I have a number of things to say from the scripture about this stuff. Okay. Um, that section of the book of Proverbs that we just read comes in the first section, which is the first 10 chapters. There's 30 chapters in the total book, 31 chapters in the whole book of Proverbs. Um, The whole first 10 chapters, the whole first third of the book, doesn't get into any Proverbs, like in the normal sense that you'll get into later in the book. The whole 10 chapters is just about teaching, particularly the young, that the most important thing that could possibly happen in their life is that they could get in their hearts the idea that they have to pursue a heart of wisdom. That there is a, there are a whole, a whole number of things and dynamics and realities in the world that they have to identify and desperately avoid. 
in a whole body of truths related to God and who he is and who, what, what everything means that they can embrace wholesomely for, for good. There's two really fundamental premises. One is the trustworthiness of God. So in the first section here in chapter 3, it starts out with a lot of people's mirror verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight, right? The idea is that God is trustworthy. He should be acknowledged. And by the time you get to chapter 9, the recognition is including he should be feared, right? Chapter 9, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? And you're like, well, that doesn't sound nice. Well, the problem is, is that human beings need sobering to think straight. And so actually the fear of the Lord is one of the most critical concepts there could possibly be for human beings to actually get a heart of wisdom. Does that make sense? The second is something that was in this passage, which is, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And then if you're like, well, what does it mean to guard your heart? Well, if it's not self-evident, and if it's not answered in the first 10 chapters of Proverbs, which it is about 100 times, the following verses do a pretty good job. Put away perversity from your mouth and corrupt talk from your lips. What you say is going to shape you. What comes out of your heart reciprocally comes back and shapes your heart. So pay attention to what's coming out of your mouth. You can find out what's already in your heart, and you cannot feed it back into your heart, right? Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. The way Philippians 4 says, it, meditate on what is good and true and noble and not in envy towards taking things that just aren't yours and that are going to destroy you, but that you would want for the present moment. Make level paths for your feet and only take ways that are firm. That is walk in wisdom. Don't do stupid stuff like walking out on the thin ice of sin because not only is it dumb and wrong, but you're going to break through, right? Look for firm places. If you don't have footing, you don't have anything, right? And then don't swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. There's, there's way more ways to get off the path than staying on it, which is what makes goodness or seeking righteousness so much more interesting and dramatic than sin. It's just really, it's just really easy to jump in the ditch. You know what I mean? Now, because of those two premises, God is trustworthy and should be trusted, and all faithfulness and true wisdom and knowledge flow out of that starting premise. That lays out the beginning of what the Bible will later in the New Testament call the world, worldliness, or the wisdom of this world. Christians often just use the word worldliness as sort of like shorthand for it, which is any amalgamation of knowledge of which the fear of the Lord and the trustworthiness of God isn't the foundational set of premises. Is worldliness. It is a view of the world or a way things should go in the world in which God is not first acknowledged and worked through all things. So worldliness can include a lot of truth, enormous amounts of truth. And people who hold to views of the world that are completely filled with worldliness can correct us when we're wrong about stuff. It happens all the time, right? It's not that worldliness has no knowledge. It's that the knowledge is it's twisted around. It doesn't have the right foundations. It doesn't feed into each other correctly. It's not proportional to itself. It's twisted. It's perverse in that sense, right? And what God is saying is, is that his giving of wisdom 
is something that we have to sort of immerse ourselves in and pursue with all of our hearts and to be trained in it. And it's not just an issue of learning precepts. It's partly that, but it's also a way of life, right? This, this father is calling his son to a way of life that pursues wisdom, right? Now, what is also the case is that what I've been referring to the last few weeks as the technopoly, right? The digital world in which we live in all of its interests and devices and dynamics is actually also a way of life that is designed to disciple us in worldliness, right? And it's not—when I say that, I want to be clear for those of you who haven't been here yet, um, that I'm not saying that technology is bad. Human beings were made in the image of God. We are creative by our very nature. We create things. In order to create things, you make you create technology, and you, and you create technologies that, through which you can create things. Human beings are technological creatures because God made us that way. Technology isn't an evil. It's a necessary good. It was always in the intention of God's creation of us, right? However, just like we're made in God's image, the technology we create, we create in our image. And when we're rooted in the trustworthiness of God, and then we go and we create a technology we think will be good— it's more likely that technology will be rooted in the goodness of God and more usable for the purposes of God and less usable for the purposes of evil, though that can't be helped, right? When we start in creating whatever technology that is, whatever structure that is, whatever institution that is, whatever dynamic it is, and we start with worldliness, we're gonna get, we're gonna create the technology in our image. And if our image is one of worldliness, we're gonna create it in our image. So the technopoly that exists within our culture because it was created in a culture that was not seeking to put God's truth at the middle of it or the fear of the Lord at the bottom of it, we created technologies and their systems and dynamics in our image. We created them in worldliness. And so they've been perfectly designed to produce what they were intended to produce, which is worldliness. Does that make sense? And the more we're immersed in it, the more likely it is to be very effective to carry that out. So one way you could say it is this. Because this week, last week I talked about time. This week I'm going to talk about faith. The technopoly is changing the content of our faith. And the way of Jesus can revive it. Now, people in the modern world um, use the word faith in the most minimal possible sense. Right? Faith usually means something like this. You believe in something that inspires you. That's what's all they mean by it. You believe in something that inspires you. And when that's, when that's what you define by it, we can pretend like faith is good. Everybody's faith is good. Faith is just good. Faith is believing in something that inspires you, right? Um, and that, listen, we, we don't own the word faith, right? Christians don't own the word faith. I mean, so, I mean, we sort of invented its use and stuff, but, but I mean, you know, words belong to everybody, right? And so um, people are going to use that word that way, okay? That is not what scripture means by that word. Do you understand? At all. Anywhere. There's nowhere in the Bible, anywhere, that uses faith that way. Or means that by faith. Right? Sometimes faith just means the full commitment of leaning your whole trust on God. Right? But in most cases, it also means the faith. That is, a whole body of truths and content about God that we ascribe to by saying we have an allegiance to him. It starts with the very central basic premises, what we call the gospel, right? That 
God is just. We human beings are horrific sinners. We require forgiveness or someone to interpose themselves to set us right with God. Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification to set us right with God. All that God requires of us is that we acknowledge this truth, that we needed Christ's death, and we believe in his death and resurrection for our salvation, and God gives us the gift of pardon, forgiveness, and credits righteousness to us, and draws us into a family with himself. And then what? Right? And the answer is to shape us in the way of wisdom. To make faithful men and women who pursue the good and love righteousness, who actually bear the image of God like it was God we were imaging. Which means everything that's true about God, we want to know and live out somehow. Not just believe conceptually and not just to be passionate about emotionally, but to live it out as well as we can applicationally and diligently. That's what we're saved for. It is an anemic Christianity to only rehearse the fact that Jesus has died for our pardon. He has shown us also the way of God, and he has given us his spirit to empower us to recognize that we are remade in God's craftsmanship. The image of our creator is being renewed in us, and we are being called to live like him in what Ephesians 4 says about us, to grow in true righteousness and godliness. So though nobody boasts before God, and we don't do any of it to earn our way to heaven, when we no longer are living out of fear or to earn anything, it doesn't mean we no longer have any motivation to do anything. To a revived soul in God, love is the greatest motivation. I didn't have children to make my parents happy, or to make, or to like fulfill myself, or to like make God. I had children because I thought it was an inherent good built into the inherent relationship I have with my wife in the spiritual and natural dynamic of our family. I did it because it was inherently a good, and I wanted to love to do the good, and I wanted out of love to give the gift of life to new human beings, and so I gave it. And when I did, I basically died for a couple of decades. Right? But it, but it was a good, it's a good, right? And I didn't, and, and so when, when these goods are before us, we don't, we don't think about the cost. We don't do them out of fear. We're not trying to earn God's favor. We do them because we're made in God's image. And we're made in his craftsmanship. And as he loves the world, he sends us to the world. And we love the world. Even in its worldliness. And that is his way. And he wants to shape us in that way. And the way of Jesus, if we'll embrace it, because ultimately when you get to the New Testament, the way of Jesus is the way of wisdom. It is the way of acting as though God is totally trustworthy in all things. Believing it, ordering our passions around it, and acting like it. And in that, Jesus is perfect man. Right? Sorry, I'm, I keep having trouble with this. It's, it's very important in our present day and age because people want, like, when I go to, sometimes I go to public stuff and I'm a pastor, right? And so people refer to the faith community. Have you heard this before? You know, the faith community is doing this and the faith community and so-and-so. And the faith, and I'm like, what do you think you mean by that? It's like, well, organizations that are based on people who find an inspiration. And I'm like, really? 
you realize you believe like fundamentally opposite things, right? It's like, I mean, it's like assuming that like if we get all the animals that have ascended from dogs together, they're all going to get along. I mean, it's like, the, I, I, the, the, I mean, it, in one sense, almost everybody in the quote faith community is trying to do some kind of social good in some kind of way. And so they kind of, you know, want to hurt us all together. But when Jesus talks about his way and its relationship to faith, he says things like, go and make disciples, which is people who have learned a whole body of things, have incorporated in their life, and do it very diligently, right? And he says, in doing that, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Do you understand? So he's talking to his disciples, who he's taught for three years, okay? And then he tells them, I want you to teach the new disciples everything. Do you understand that like faith for us is not a minimalist concept? It's a concept that we are always underachieving. We're always kind of like in baby phase. Like the reason why we have to pursue a life of wisdom is like we're, we're like never going to hardly get to second base here. Like there is so much in the beauty and majesty of God. There's so many nuances, so many dynamics, so many things in life that God is interested in to, for that these things in their foundational sense could be applied to. We're not anywhere. Right? I mean, you're like, well, Nick, I understand Christian theology. Do you? But do you understand how it applies to life, food, economics, art, leisure, beauty? Like, do, I mean, do we really? What we're doing is we're absorbing a philosophy coming through the te technopoly, which foundational philosophy is worldliness. Right? You can think about—there's another verse that brings up this idea of holistic faith really well. When the Apostle Paul is leaving Ephesus, he taught there for two years. He would lecture in this lecture hall for like a few hours a day. Okay, like that's a lot of content, you understand? Way more than you would get in an undergrad and a master's, right? It's a lot of lectures, right? People would come and listen for hours, and he didn't run out of material, this guy, right? And when he left, and he, he's going to get like basically captured and ultimately beheaded, and he says, listen, it's the last time you're going to see me. Here's, here's what I want you to know. I am not guilty of any of your spiritual blood. None of you are ever going to be able to blame your damnation on me. Do you understand? You need to take personal ownership and responsibility because I never shrunk back out of fear to please you from teaching you the whole counsel of God. Do you understand? He did, he's like, I, he's like, because every preacher, every teacher like me is always tempted to tell you what you want to hear and what I already know you'll agree with and what you'll like. Everybody's tempted to do that, right? You'll come, you'll give more money, you'll tell your friends, it'll be great, I'll be a little celebrity, that'll be fantastic, right? And what Paul says, I didn't do that. I talked about the most unpopular things. I meddled in your life. I told you what you were doing wrong. I called you towards pursuing God in that thing. I didn't condemn you, but I sure told you that this is not the way a Christian lives, and I told you all of it, and therefore your blood is on your own heads. Right? Because what? I taught you the whole faith. Right? Because you see, some people would say, Nick, you know, the Christian faith, it's not really— disappearing. Like, it's, you know, like, yeah, there's fewer people in church and stuff, but there's a lot of people who believe in Jesus. It's like, well, one, one, actually, there's a lot of Jesus renouncing going on right now, and a lot of people are getting nervous about this. Friends, this has already happened, all right? This is the problem with being worldly, is you, you can't predict anything, right? Like, if you read in Proverbs about, like, the adulterous woman, it says that, like, she pulls you down to the grave, but she doesn't even consider her own path. 
She's blind herself. Everybody who's like in worldliness is just kind of like walking in the darkness. And he's like, the way of the righteous is like the rising sun of dawn. And you keep walking and there's a little light, but you can see where you're going until it's like the bright noonday sun. He's like, listen, if you have no predictive capacity in worldliness, because worldliness starts with a misunderstanding of the world, misunderstanding of creation, misunderstanding of human beings, and misunderstanding of God, it misunderstands social ideas, political ideas, artistic ideas, developmental ideas, fertility ideas, every ideas, even in the midst of all kinds of true propositions. And so you can't predict anything, and you don't even know stuff is happening when it's happening all around you. The faith has been disappearing for decades because we got real shallow. We're like, oh, you know, they believe in Jesus. That's great. And it, there's no foundation there. There's no content. There's no way of life. And when you give somebody a little thing to believe in a worldliness way of life, at some point it doesn't fit enough anymore and they get rid of it. And it's not weird that like a bunch of people are deconstructing their faith in the last 15 years because the faith has already been deconstructed publicly for them, in their minds, in their lives, and they haven't—they they have no, no place, no stake, no, no marker by which they can say, oh, this is happening, right? And so we knew they were going to deconstruct their faith because they already stopped getting married. They already stopped going to church. They already stopped serving the poor. They already stopped doing Christianity, right? All right. So the technology, I'm arguing, is the most comprehensive method of communicating the whole counsel of worldliness and teaching us to obey everything it has commanded. Do you understand? Now, um, when I was in—I uh, did a short vacation with one of my kids to Florida. I think it was last year. Maybe it was two years ago now. And one of the things I'd want to do is I wanted to take her scuba diving, and she's one of my, like, like go get them kids. And so we went out scuba diving, and it was like, it was like three and a half foot seas. Like, it was not a nice day. Okay, it was like 25 mile an hour winds, but we're like, we're going to do it. And she's like, yeah, all right. So we get out in this boat with my friend Jack, who is an amazing diver, but he's like well nigh 75 years old at this point, okay? Um, and so the three of us get in the water on this wreck, and we're going down. And what we, we, we know the wind is blowing like 25 miles an hour this way, right? But the current is running about three knots that way, okay? And so we're trying to get down 90 feet to this wreck, right? And so we get down there, and it's like a desert. Nothing but sand. There's no wreck, right? Because we don't know our boat was moving this way at like four knots because of the wind. We're moving this way at three knots. There's actually a current above the thermocline and a current below the thermocline. By the time we get to the bottom, we're like 75 feet from where we're supposed to be. We have no idea what direction the wreck is. So we swim about 75 feet in the direction that Jack thinks it is. And listen— I have never met anybody with the kind of direction underwater as this man, Jack McDougall, okay? Like, he is the salt, the salty old man, okay? And so he swims in that direction. We just follow him, right? And we just—it's nothing but sand as far as, as far as the visibility can see, right? And so we come back up, but it's four-foot seas. So your, your head is six inches out of water, and the seas are up here. You can't even see the boat, right? And without some kind of drift marker, you really don't know where you're going, or where everything is. So ultimately, like, we ended up at the top of the wave. You can see the boat. We're waving. They come over and get us. We get back in, and we just go inshore to some, dive something closer where the seas aren't so bad, right? But you get down in the water, and you can't see the city. You can't see the boat. You've got nothing to say, this is what I'm moving based on, right? And you see, if you don't have 
a heart of wisdom deeply rooted in the whole counsel of God, you don't have the drift markers to figure out what the heck is going on, right? And so all you can do in a series like this is be like, okay, let's just try to come up with some kind of drift marker to like think about, right? And so last week I talked about time and I was like, look, the average American is spending six to seven hours, seven days a week on screens outside of work, right? That's more than a full-time job. Maybe that's too much. Like, I mean, because I, I don't know, I don't know how many hours is the, is the limit, right? And I, it's probably not even the same for everybody. And yes, there are differences in screen time, right? Um, but we should acknowledge that, whoops, sorry. We should acknowledge that um, there are differences in screen time, and we tend to do the worst the most. Okay, so let's not pretend that because there's differences in screen time, that makes it better. Because when we look at our lives, relative to the good and bad screen time, we do the bad stuff the most. Right? So look, I don't have an objective measure of how much Instagram is okay, and how much Zoom is okay, and how many hours. But I'm thinking that something like 49 hours a week, mostly the bad stuff, we could use that as a drift marker that maybe we've slid a little bit. You know what I'm saying? I mean, maybe, right? Uh, hopefully when you came in, you got one of these things if you didn't get it last week. And it, it has some of the purposes here. My goal is to review enough that it gets boring so that we can master this and actually do something about it, okay? But my goal here is not that you're enjoying yourself right now. My goal is to save your life and for me not to be guilty of your spiritual blood. Okay, so can we be clear on what our purposes are here? Okay. Therefore, the, the goal that I'm trying to push us towards is to recognize negatively that we need to see and flee the technopoly. We need to see what's happening and be like, this is not okay. And I'm going to ferociously do whatever is necessary to not be a slave to it, which includes digital intentionalism and actually also digital asceticism. Because if you don't discipline your body and say, I'm going to harden myself, you're just going to slide right back in, even with your intentions. Because you are going to use the technology because you can't not use any of it. So you're going to use it, and there's going to be this constant tide pulling you back in. You need to have a hardening that you're doing to yourself that makes you capable of continually resetting or you'll slide back in. Does that make sense? And then positively, you need to know that Jesus is not just a savior who died for your sins and rose for your justification. He is that first. And only by believing that can you become his disciple and receive his salvation. Part of his salvation is your transformation and inclusion in his plan and purpose and the ability to live in the work of his kingdom and to have the, that purpose and meaning in your life. And all of these things are part of his gift to you in salvation. Does that make sense? Now, um, you'll also see on here it says, faith, time, formation, and love. Now, that's not all of human existence, right? But um, I, I, all I thought when I was putting this together was, are there some things that I could focus on and be like, hey, this is a big thing, right? And if we, we saw that those four big things were out of whack, maybe we'd be like, look, the whole thing's out of whack. We got to reset, right? That's my goal. And you can see that it sort of cheats because it takes Jesus saying the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And you see how this kind of lays out that like your strength is the energy, is what you do with the energy and time that you have, right? You exert your energy in time towards something. You're using your strength, right? Your mind is what, what do you believe? What do you think? How do you think it through? What does that mean? Your soul is like what is happening inside of you? How are you being shaped? What kind of self is being created in you, right? And then heart is, like, what do you love? And how is that clear? Does that make sense? So, 
with a few minutes we have left, let's talk about faith in particular, okay? If you think about faith's markers, right? So, so with strength, I use time. With faith and its markers, I'm going to use God's teachings or his commands. Like if we started with just the things God said are, are wrong, and the things God says are right, and you say, hey, how's it going in the technopoly with this? Are the things that God said right being glorified, honored, and applied, and encouraged? Or are the things that God said are not right? Right? And what, what I would say to you is, and now remember, the opposite in reality of pure good, or the will of God, let's say the will of God, the wholesome good, is not pure evil. Okay? That's a conceptual fallacy. There's no such thing as pure evil. The devil is not pure evil. Do you understand? Evil is, is not a thing. It's, it's a distortion of a thing. It's a parasite. The parasite has to suck on something, right? God has made a good creation. Evil is a distortion of a good. Do you understand? So the opposite of God is not the devil in human experience. It's idolatry. It's worshiping something that doesn't acknowledge God and that distorts who God is, right? Damnation comes through not just denial, but distortion. It doesn't come from embracing pure evil. It comes from walking off the way. Does that make sense? So if we look at something like the Ten Commandments, right? And you're like, how is this going with the technopoly? What I would argue is, in very artistic, very subtle, very sophisticated ways, evil is being called good and good is being called evil. Just very regularly. All across our lives. And we're coming to emotionally empathize with the things that, that Jesus and that the God calls wickedness. And we're coming to hate or dislike or have disgust for things that God calls good, right? You have to understand that our movement morally connects deeply with our sense of honorability and dishonor, am I in or out, and also cleanliness and disgust, right? Our emotional dynamics around what's right and wrong connects with disgust and with a sense of cleanliness or wholesomeness. And so it's not as simple as like, oh, this is good, this is bad. It's kind of like you, you feel revolted towards something, even if you wouldn't say it's bad. Does that make sense? That's why— Oftentimes, people will leave the church because they slowly grow feelings of anger and revulsion and disgust and boredom. And they—those feelings grow in them, and then they decide they don't believe in it anymore. It's an emotional process. It's not a rational process, which doesn't mean it's wrong. We have a lot of processes that aren't rational that are right. Do you understand? It's natural. Okay, so if you work through these, no other gods versus following was popular. I don't know. Let's—let's—let's let's, let's spot them one, Okay. Uh, no idols versus make your own God. Okay, that doesn't look good to me. I don't know about you. Uh, no vain speech versus say whatever you want. Uh, what you say really matters. Don't just say stuff because it shapes your heart. It affects other people really deeply. When you think about the technopoly and how we talk to each other in it and what people say, you think people are really careful with how they talk to not hurt people and to say what's true, right? I'm not sure that was going well. Um, honoring a Sabbath rhythm for everybody around you versus do whatever you want with your time and your rhythm and your leisure. That one doesn't look good to me either. Honor your parents and people who deserve honor versus disregard your parents and people who deserve honor. Uh, I'm going to argue that one's not going well either. Um, do not murder. Jesus also says that's the unleashing of wrath towards others and anger and hatred. Don't do that. Or unleash wrath whenever you want to. Uh, we still haven't gotten a win here as far as I can tell. 
Um, no adultery versus unleashing lust. Uh, still waiting. No theft versus take what you want. Uh, that's still a good for me, bad for you kind of one. No lies versus just do whatever you have to say, whatever you have to say, look good. Don't covet or resent people's privilege who have achieved things. Um, I'm going to say that that's like a zero for 10 maybe with the technopoly. I'm not sure how you guys are feeling about this. Uh, maybe they got one. You know, maybe I'm scoring it wrong. That's why we should have three judges, right? Another way to think about this is to think about the dynamic of the dynamics of sin, right? So over the course of 2,000 years, many Christian theologians and spiritual directors have said, here are the dynamics of how sin functions in the human heart. And it was coalesced in this group they just called the seven deadly sins and the seven heavenly virtues, right? And as Christians, what we're doing is in the dynamics of our heart, we're putting to death these seven deadly sins, recognizing that they, they aren't deadly in themselves. Like for example, if you commit lust, does that sin, will that sin kill you? Right? And the answer is, well, well, no, not if you're in Christ. I mean, Jesus died for real sins, right? Moses was a murderer. You understand? Paul helped get people murdered, right? Like Jesus died for like real bloody sins, right? The seven deadly sins are deadly because they will kill your soul. They will damn you. They will take you in a direction that will break down the wisdom of God supplant it with the wisdom of worldliness that affirms your use of these dynamics, fill your heart more and more with them, harden your heart in them until you are lost. Where you reject the grace of Jesus and take yourself out from under it, right? So let's, let's just pop through these. Pride kills humility. Okay, uh, we're gonna say 0 for 1 on that one. Um, envy versus charity. Charity being like acting in love towards others no matter what it costs you, as opposed to wishing you could take from somebody else so that you could have it for yourself. Avarice and greed versus contentment and generosity. Wrath versus meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It's, it's the, when you have the impulse for wrath, and, but you don't act self-importantly in exerting it on other people. That's what meekness is, right? Um, sloth, sadia um, versus diligence, fervor, and zeal. So sadia, or the sin of sloth, is not being tired. It's not even really laziness. The sin of sloth is a lack of fervor and zeal for the good. So imagine you take your kid to Costco, and they're like six years old, and you're in the second aisle, right? You haven't even filled up the second cart yet, and <laughs> the kid is like whining and like pulling on you, and just like, Mom, I'm so tired, I'm so tired, I just can't do this anymore, right? And you, you go like, okay, let's get some ice cream, and they're like, okay, right? Or the, the kid that like, you know, like, I'm full, but you're like, do you want dessert? And they're like, yes, right? Like, in our emotional structures, there are things that we just believe are boring. And there are things that excite us. Sloth is the formation of the human soul where we allow the things that are not good to excite us. And we think goodness and righteousness and truth and love and care and, and virtue are all boring and stupid. And so we, got, we have no emotional energy for them. We have no, to quote Romans 12, spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Does that make sense? Now, about out of time, but I would also say another test you could do is if you look through human history, what are the two areas where God instructs us that human beings are always looking for a structure of reasons to deny what God says? And those areas most consistently, as far as I can tell, have been sex and money, right? You could argue power. Power is a little more slippery because we do have to use power in some cases that in, in a broader sense that it's harder to nail that down. But when I look at the technopoly, what I see is a virtual complete reversal of God's directives in these areas. 
and all kinds of very sophisticated excuses for why what God says isn't right, which undermines the faith. And you might be like, yeah, I mean, these are two areas. Yeah, but here's the thing. If you take a normal young person and you watch their faith be deconstructed over time, where they lose it, what do you think the first doctrine they can't get themselves to believe what God actually said is when they're 15? Okay, it's like 90% in, like in Madison right now, it's 90% sexuality. Right? And you're like, well, what's the big deal? Like if you slip on that one just a little bit, it's like, well, here's the thing. Because the logic of worldliness becomes the premise of that choice. And then it starts working through all your other choices, all your other decisions, all the logic of all your other thoughts. The minute you say, you know what, God says this stuff, but he got sexuality wrong, what you're doing is you're admitting the logic of worldliness to restructure what you believe. That's what you're doing. You don't really realize you're doing it, but that is what you're doing. And you can't keep that out of everything else. All right. Very quickly. Can't cover that. Okay. We, yeah, it's very sad. Okay, we, we need to pursue, therefore, the way of Jesus, which is in some ways very much the opposite of this. It's laid out in those first 10 chapters of Proverbs that is confirmed in, say, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, which I won't read for you right now, being that I'm out of time. But in those first two chapters, the Apostle Paul says, um, there is a wisdom of the world, and there is a wisdom of God. And in that wisdom of God, he says, this is why the world can't understand the gospel. It can't understand um, God using the weak to shame the strong or the elite. That it can't understand the man Jesus Christ. That's why they crucified him, right? Like the elites and the, the people that were wise at that age, they killed Jesus the Christ, right? Because though they had so many things correct, the Romans and the Jewish leaders understood so much about the world for their time, but they could not understand Jesus the Christ, who was the perfect wisdom of God. They killed him, right? Do you see how there's something wrong with the system of thought that could not see the value of Jesus the Christ. And then he says also our recognition of Jesus and ability to see the gospel is actually a work of the Spirit of God. It's not a naturalistic event. And so what we need to recognize as people is that we have to see that what was spoken of as wisdom in the Old Testament and this thing that we were called to pursue out of faith and we're called to pursue it as a way of life. Jesus is wisdom made flesh. The Word of God made flesh. The man who spoke, acted, taught, formed, and formed his disciples in that way. And you and I have to recognize that if we want to have a faith, it's not just accepting certain propositions and going to certain Bible studies or just accepting Jesus. There is a whole counsel of God that we need to learn so that we can learn to obey everything Jesus commanded. So that we could get a heart of wisdom and we could know what a life of love looks like in the worldly world in which we live. That we could, by taking his word seriously, have drift markers so that when we're getting off the path, we can recognize it's happening. We can get back on. Because God is not mainly interested in how far off the path you are. He's the one holding up the light and saying, come back to it and I will guide you. And you and I have to choose that with a level of ferocity that will get us out of the house of the adulterous woman and out of the house of folly and mockery and out of the vanity of all of that and back to the one that we were meant to trust with all of our heart.
and to commit all of our ways to him so that he can make our paths straight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please help us as your people and as people considering you or even just hearing these things about you. We pray that you would, you would grant us faith, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to believe, that you would help us to see what you've called us to, what is the truth, that you would, you would reconstruct our faith from wherever it is now. So that the trustworthy, your trustworthiness and the fear of the Lord is at the bottom of these things, that we would see your wisdom displayed in Jesus, crucified and risen, that we would seek to obey everything he's commanded, that we would want to know not the minimum about you so that you would not be mad at us, but that we would, like you were a truly good father and great teacher, that we would not want to know everything you had to teach us so that we could bring into our lives, into the lives of those we love, into the lives of our neighbors and even our enemies, every good you have for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.